welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. So, my name's Peter anyway. I'm one of the pastors here at Victory Church and it's a pleasure for me to be here with you tonight. And um, I'm just going to be sharing the word tonight and... The last couple of weeks I've actually been up here on Sunday night sharing as well and did a message which I'd entitled, um, No Religion, Don't Kid Yourself. And um, basically I, I, I spoke about that because there were a few things were going on and you know, read about in the paper and seen on the TV and, and it was really frustrating. It's the, the craziness of the world we live in. And then on top of all that, there were some people, you know, ex-politicians and columnists who were saying things like, you know, all of the problems in the world would be solved if we could only sort of somehow divorce religion from our, from our political system and our legal system. And I sort of was thinking about that. I thought, well, that, that's, that's a load of nonsense, really, because you can't divorce yourself from what you believe. Every one of us is religious in some way, shape, or form, if religion is really about what we believe and the values that we hold. And just because you're an atheist or a, a Muslim or whatever you might be, you can't divorce yourself from those things. We're all, we all bring, bring our religion to the table and ultimately our lives uh, reflect what we believe and ultimately our society reflects what the majority of us believe and you know, the things that are voted for, etc., etc. And so certainly, you know, I don't think we should be on the back foot as Christians when people make comments like that, but I think we need to come back, and, and that's really why I shared what I shared over the last couple of weeks, to hopefully put us on the front foot a little bit instead of being so back-footed as Christians, because often we feel like we have to, you know, bear the full weight of having to come up with all the answers. But really, I think we've seen, you know, we, because of what we believe, the fact we have a rational faith, a faith that will stand scrutiny, a faith that is based upon good, uh, credible evidence you know, we can put some of the pressure back on those that want to, you know, criticise us for being Christians. And so, um, you know, I also made the comment that not all beliefs are equal. And, um, you know, it's good to process what we believe. Many of us just absorb our faith and we don't really understand what it's about. We haven't really looked into it to see whether it's credible, to see whether it's true, to see where it will lead, where it will lead to, lived out to its logical conclusion, and so on and so forth. And so I encourage people to do that. Um, and... Uh, you know, and I also made the comment that um, at the end of the day, you know, we can love and respect one another, but that's different than saying everyone, what everyone believes is right. Okay, we're living in a tolerant society today where you know, it's almost, you're supposed to feel bad about saying that what you believe is right and what someone else believes is wrong. Now, again, I think you know, we should have good reasons for why we might believe those things, but it's not wrong to say it, surely, yeah. particularly if it's said with respect and love. Okay, so last week, I sort of wanted to get down and dig in a little bit and say, okay, well, what about Christianity? You know, what's the, what would be a reason that you'd want to become a Christian for? And so I started by looking at the question, is Christianity worth considering? Looked at a few things there. I would encourage you to go back and, and perhaps have a listen to the, um, that message on the website or um, download it uh, from iTunes. Um, answered the question, what sets Christianity apart? And the, the short answer there was Jesus. And we looked at some of his distinctives. And um, finally, just said, where does the evidence lead? And essentially, I just spoke around, you know, the fact that if anyone, um, you know, because the thing that really sets Jesus apart is the fact of his resurrection. Okay, his resurrection is like the stamp. It's like the seal on everything that he did before that. Okay, and so if his his resurrection didn't happen, well, then forget everything else that happened before that. Okay, but the fact is, um, you know, there were people that were closest to him, absolutely convinced that he rose from the dead. And I think that is massive evidence that Jesus did, really did rise from the dead, and Christianity has only got where it's got to today because of that fact, I think. And so we looked at that, and uh, I just want to follow up today by sharing a message which I've called Jesus Reconsidered. Okay, Jesus 
reconsidered. And what I mean by that is, you know, I know that many people have at some point in their life often considered Jesus. And often they've considered, upon consideration, that he's not worthy of their consideration. You know, perhaps they've things, thought things like, you know, Jesus is too hard to relate to. Um, perhaps he's just too religious. He's too airy-fairy. He's too wimpy. He's too complex. He's too hard to understand. He's too simple. He's too aloof. He's too demanding, you know, because again, you could get any one of those um, perceptions from, from a multitude of, of just looking around and, and hearing what different people have to say about Christianity, maybe the way people live their Christianity, all of those things could possibly be gleaned about Jesus just from observing what goes on in and around the church even. And so I think that, you know, I get that. There are many reasons why a person might be, be put off from Jesus or just sort of want to lump him into a basket with all other um, great religious teachers. Um, and that, you know, it could be quite intimidating to really contemplate um, who Jesus might be. But ultimately, as complex as he might be, you know, a person who claimed to be God and a person who claimed to be around before the beginning of the... Of the oh, turn my... Hang on, tick. Ask keys to get down when you want them to or they'll keep going. Keys, feel free to... If you'd like to, <laughs> keyboard. Let's put our hands together for for Fee. <laughs> Thanks, Ashari. <laughs> it would have just been me and you, except that I had the volume on. <clears throat> so Jesus is this amazing person to contemplate. But at the same time, there's a beautiful simplicity about who he is and, and what he ultimately brought to us. And tonight, I just want to have a look at three things that are simple yet powerful things that Jesus ultimately did that, that change everything for us and ultimately will change everything for any person on the face of the planet should they choose to embrace what he's done on our behalf. So the first thing that Jesus did is he redefined religion. He redefined religion. Again, many people's concept of religion is about rules and regulations. It's about rituals. It's about robes. It's about all of those sorts of things. And certainly in Jesus' day, that, that was pretty much what it was about. Okay, And many people, again, depending on your, your background, your tradition, maybe that's what, what your experience of church has been to this point or at least some point in the past. Um, but interestingly, you know, Jesus was a Jew <clears throat> and he was, I guess, Compared to what we would perceive as religious, he would be quite religious in terms of um, he, he you know, observed all the Jewish customs about what they should eat and you know, attending the temple and um, synagogues and all of those sorts of things. But interestingly, for those who were you know, religious, Jesus was perceived as being too unreligious. Jesus didn't fit in because he didn't really, he was just far too normal. He was far too real. He was far too <clears throat> accessible. He didn't play by their rules. And often Jesus came at loggerheads with the religious leaders of the day for not being religious enough. They would always try and pick him up on, on little nitpicky things pertaining to the laws of, of their religious laws of the day. And Jesus would often know exactly where they're coming from. He'd turn the tables and they'd end up with egg on their face. Okay, and I want to just read a, quick, a scripture quickly in Matthew chapter 22 and verses 34 to 40. <clears throat> It said, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So this is two religious groups of the day. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? 
Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's amazing. We're talking about Jesus redefining religion. Now, you may or may not know back in the day that a guy called Moses received directly from God ten commandments. The first one was about loving God, and then it went on and talked about other things that, that pertain to how we treat one another. Okay, and it talked about no stealing and no adultery and all those sorts of things. And then in addition to that, there are a whole bunch of, <clears throat> of laws that sort of broke down some of those things and, and made it specific, you know, gave some, some real guidelines for how the Jews were to live as a community. And among those, you know, some of those are very practical laws about you know, restitution, if you do something that affects your neighbour in a negative way, and some were ceremonial laws about sacrifices and cleanliness and, and all of those sorts of things. And so there are about 613 of those laws. By the time Jesus came on the scene several thousand years later, there were literally tens of thousands of laws that had been accumulated around these initial laws. And again, you know, probably with good reason, because you know, that's, you know, it's like in our society today, situations happen that, aren't, you know, that really have to be processed and thought about, and so the end result is usually a law. Okay, from now on, you're not allowed to do this, or from now on, you're not allowed to do that, or from now on, when this happens, you know, this needs to happen as a result. Okay, so there was just these laws everywhere. And Jesus, um, you know, when asked about this question of the law, he basically just boiled it down to two. And he says, man, if you get these two right, you've covered everything. And it's just simply this, love God. The very thing that we were created to do, love God. We're created to worship God. So if we get that one right, we're halfway there. The second one is just love people. Love God and love people summarizes everything that's in the Bible and has been added since. It was actually initially written. You know, Jesus, people have this perception of Jesus being religious, and, you know, but the fact is, he didn't come to commend the religious elite, the, sorry, the religious elite. He actually came and rebuked those guys because they'd made it so hard for the average person to feel anywhere near close to God. What Jesus came to do was to help the sick and the broken and the desperate, those people who knew they were far from God, who knew they weren't part of the religious elite who felt excluded, who felt unclean, who felt not good enough. And Jesus came for them. And I love the way he, he was able to look into situations and, and um, he knew the letter of the law, but more than that, he knew the spirit behind the law. Because whenever there's a law in place, particularly when it's one of God's laws, there's a heart behind it that God is wanting, that, that is reflective of his heart. And so when God talks about um, you know, for example, the Sabbath principle, you know, uh, back in the day, you know, work six days and rest on the Sabbath. Okay, and so the Sabbath principle was if you work seven days a week, you're going to wear yourself out. Okay, it's not that God needed us to take time you know, to worship him. I mean, all that, that's obviously part of the Sabbath was about that. But primarily it was about have a rest. You're not designed to work 24-7, you know, 12 months a year, etc., etc. Okay, it's for our own good that God implements the Sabbath. Now, by the time Jesus was on the planet, the Sabbath had become this, this, this religious observance and you know, it had all these little um, fine details around about what you could and what you couldn't do and how far you could walk. Now, some of that was in the Bible from the beginning. You, know, you couldn't work, walk certain distances and you couldn't carry certain loads and you, know, um, you had to rest your animals and all that sort of stuff. 
And you know, by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Pharisees were getting really, really nitpicky. And one particular instance, a person who was sick came up to Jesus. And the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and thinking, what's he going to do? Is he going to heal this guy? He can't heal him today. It's the Sabbath. And Jesus just knew what they're thinking. He says, look, you guys, if you had a donkey that fell in a ditch, wouldn't you actually try and get it out? You wouldn't wait till the next day, would you? And he says, so how much more right is it to heal a person on the Sabbath? And he heals the guy. And they are fuming. I mean, the fact is it took you know, Jesus less effort to heal a guy on the Sabbath than it would have taken them to get out of bed. But they were, you know, they were so intent on, on trying to trap Jesus because they were caught up in their religion and their position and all that sort of thing. And so Jesus is wonderful in the way that he, you know, he goes on in Mark chapter 2. He says, he says, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. And that applies to every law. At the end of the day, the law is there for us, not to, not to punish us. Okay, The law is there for people. That's the heart behind it. And, uh, the other, and I had an example of this the other day. I was driving, you know, um, and, I was, and I saw this lady um, come out of a side street. And I thought it was a little bit odd the way she came out. It sort of got my attention because I saw she wasn't the first car um, at the T, at the T section, uh, intersection, but she was the first car out. In other words, there was a car waiting, and she's ripped around this car and come out and cut in front of it and cut in front of me and a few other people, and she's gone herring off up the road. And then... And then um, she got caught behind a bus or something, so we would go past, and I'm going, yeah, that'll, that'll teach you. <laughs> and I noticed, I noticed she had a baby in the back seat, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, ah, I'm going to follow her, I'm going to give her a piece of my mouth, a piece of my mind, you know. Like, I just, but but she, she got past the bus, and then she went flying up up the road, and did a left, and I'm thinking, what a crazy lady. And I just felt this guy say, oh yeah, or, or the baby could be in need of the hospital right now. And it's just like, whoa, <laughs> she's breaking the law, but is she really? If that's the case. She was driving like an idiot to a casual observer. And you know, if a policeman had pulled her over, he probably would have wanted to give her a fine there and then. Unless he sees a baby in the back that's blue, and then he begins to help her get to the hospital. Because it's, the law is there to help people, not to hurt people. Okay, and I think we need to, remind, we need to be mindful of, that, mindful of that and we need to help people understand that because often, you know, at first glance, laws feel restrictive, they feel, they feel harsh, they feel cold, they feel that they're an imposition. But when we look at the heart behind the law, we see it's actually a heart of love, or there should be in any decent sort of law. Okay, and then the same thing should be applying in our society today. And so Jesus takes all of the law and he brings it really down. Hey, look, the law ultimately is about people. Love God and love people. If you can operate out of that, you don't need to worry about all the little nitpicking, fiddly little bits of the law because if you love people, you're not going to be stealing from them. You're not going to be hurting them. You're not going to be abusing them. You're not going to be speaking about them behind their back. You're not going to be doing all those sorts of things that you know, the law speaks into. Paul reiterates that later on, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. He says, you know, what does it matter if, if you speak in tongues and make a big deal, but we don't have love in our hearts? We're just like a clanging symbol. Or, you know, if we make some bold religious sacrifice, you know, and we don't have love, well, so what? Even if we sacrifice ourselves and surrender ourselves to the flame, but it's, it's just some sort of show, big deal. doesn't matter. It's all about what is the heart intent. And Jesus wonderfully, I think, brings it back. 
because religion had become this big burdensome thing. Jesus had to rebuke the Pharisees. You guys, you tie up a heavy load and put it on people's backs and you don't lift a finger to help. And essentially that's what had happened with religion and that's you know, often the case with religion. We need to come back and keep coming back and keep coming back and coming back again to what Jesus said and to get Jesus' heart on the matter because by and large, unfortunately, myself included, as, you know, as Christians, we often do the, don't do the best job of representing Jesus well. We revert back to what is easier and often it's easier just to you know, adhere to a few laws, usually preferential type laws, you know, don't do this and do do that, rather than really get to the heart of the matter and love people the way God wants us to love them. So that's the first thing. Jesus redefined religion. The second thing he did was to reveal the Father. And again, an overwhelming perception across the world is that God is a lawgiver and a judge. Now you might say, well, hang on a minute, most people don't believe in God. Yes, they do. Most people in our world today believe in God. It's only 2% of the world that are atheists, believe it or not. Most people believe in God or some form of spirituality. Okay? And you know, when they do believe in God, they have this concept that God is aloof, that he's a judge, that he, he, he is dispassionate, if not spiteful, in his attempts to trip us up, ultimately in order to judge us and to send us to hell. That's many people's perception of God. And yet when Jesus came, again, he did a great job of just unveiling who God really was and what God really was about. Remember, we've already talked about the fact that the heart behind the law was love. But again, the laws had got in the way of people actually seeing that heart. And so Jesus reveals our Father in heaven. Not God the judge, God the Lord giver, the lawgiver, God the king, but our Father in heaven. When you pray, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc. Not just in a dry theological sense. Jesus didn't just come and say, okay, our Father means this. He provides for us. He protects us. And just sit down and you know, unpack a little bit of theological truth for people. But he lived as the Father would live on this planet. In John chapter 14, verse 6 to 9, we read this. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. Talking to his disciples, those 12 that were closest to him and really should have known him as as well as anyone. He says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Which, again, you could probably relate to that. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after, sorry, even, if, even after I've been a, uh, among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You can almost pick up the disappointment in his voice. After all we've been through, through together, after all the teaching, after all the miracles, after all the, 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 the you know, face-offs with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, after all the, 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 the help and the, and the healing and, and all the wonderful things, and now you're saying, give us more? You're not enough? In other words, Jesus is saying, what I do, what I say and what I think is exactly what God in heaven would do. And what he would think and what he would say given the same circumstances. And so if you want to know what God is like, You can go to the Bible and you can see what Jesus did and how he responded and what he said and in some cases even see what he thinks and that's exactly what our Father in Heaven is like. 
He's not just a harsh lawgiver. He's not just a harsh judge. I mean, Jesus was amazing in the way that he, you know, little kids sort of flocked around him. And sinners and the people that were religious offcasts, the people, the, thing, the, the people that religious people didn't want to have anything to do with, they flocked to Jesus as well. And he was quite happy amongst them. He would go to their homes for lunch and for dinners and you know, he would cop flack for who he hung around with. That's what the father's like. I mean, it's, you know, there's some amazing things to ponder about the father. I mean, we could think about you know, what it means to be omnipresent, all places, all times, everywhere. You know, knowing all things, all powerful. You know, that, that's, that's pretty heavy-duty sort of stuff. But when it comes to relating to God, we get the picture of a father. I love that. We're called to approach him as kids approach their dad. And I was thinking about this. You know, how does he want us to, to, to live our life with the view of him as father? And I think about when I was a young lad playing hockey. And, you know, started hockey in year six, played it for a few years. And, and it was always a treat when Dad was there, particularly on Saturday mornings. And, um, you know, you'd, have it, you'd do your best, um, have a good game every now and then, score a goal. And every time I'd score a goal or do something that I was proud of, the first thing I would do would look to see if my dad saw it. Yeah. The first thing, i just, is, is he watching? Did he see that? Yeah. And, you know, it'd be a real treat on the way home. And Dad would just, you know, say he played well and loved this, whatever. And just think, is that the way, that's the way God wants us to, to live. With an eye towards heaven, saying, God, are you watching? Yeah. Did you like that? Was that good? <laughs> Not, oh, be religious, be religious. <laughs> no, is dad watching? Yeah. Have I honoured the family name today? Right. Is he proud of me? He wants us to approach him with childlike expectation. And again, I think of my own kids for this one. But, you know, often I'll just walk through the door... And Isabella or Michaela will come running up. Dad, have you got something for me? <laughs> I mean, what am I? Made of money, made of lollies, made of whatever? But that's just the expectation. Just like, have, have you got something for me? Yeah. And I love that. That's what God wants us to be like when it comes to him. Now, as we get older, you know, we don't, you know, I don't run to dad now. Dad, have you got something for me? Though I do raid his fridge occasionally, I must admit. He's always got chocolate in there. Um, often have to try and beat Fiona to that, but oh, that's a jelly bean. So Fiona, yes. But but the fact is, you know, as we grow and mature, there are different things that, that float our boat. But I think we can still live with that sense of expectation. Dad, have you got something for me? And I think essentially, you know, we talk about having a devotional life. We, you know, we encourage you to get up in the morning and read your Bible and to pray. And part of that should be, Dad, have you got something for me today? Is there something I can do today for you? Is there something you can teach me? Is there something I can learn? You know, Dad, have you got something for me? What have you got? You know, have I seen what you've given me today? Have I expressed, have I expressed appreciation for that? I think that that's really what it's about. It's so different than religion. It's so distant than just you know, serving this harsh taskmaster who at the end of the day isn't going to be happy anyway. That's the way many people are doing their faith doing their Christianity of all things. He wants us to be absolutely confident in his love. And again, I always tell him my kids I love them. And Michaela, sometimes I'll say, Michaela, guess what? She goes, I know, Dad, you love me. <laughs> I know, Dad, you love me. But she knows it. She knows I love her and she can preempt it. And again, how many of us, if we just brought that little element into our life, 
rather than am I good enough? Does he really love me? Does he care? Has he forgotten? Is he still with me? What about what I did yesterday? Can he ever forgive me? Etc. Etc. No, he loves me. I know you love me. Yeah, I messed up. I'm sorry, but I thank you that you still love me. Secure in the knowledge that he always has our best interests at heart. Again, our kids know that. You know, there are different moods in our home, (laughs) different expressions of love at different times. Sometimes it is that I love you. Sometimes it's the cuddle, the snuggle. Sometimes it's, you know, watching TV together and just hanging out. But sometimes it's the other expression of love, the expression that's concerned about their future. And, you know, if you carry on like that, you're going to have problems when you get married. Or you're going to have problems, you know. Like, and so we've got to, you know, get that out of you. And so we, you know, but, but the whole time I'm trusting that based on everything that's going on, that the, my kids are absolutely convinced that I want the best for them in their lives. I want to set them up for the, for the win. Give them the best possible start in life. This is our Father in heaven. That's all he wants for us. Whether it be the laws that he's put in place, whether it be some of the challenges that come our way, whether it be some of the, the delays to some of those immature prayers that we might pray, it's all about fathering. It's all about a God in heaven who loves us and has the very best in mind. He has aspirations and dreams for our lives and he wants to do all he possibly can to see that we make it into those. And so sometimes from our perspective, we don't get it. And so we throw our little tantrums and we sulk and you know, we bang the door as we go to our room and you know, try and ignore him and all that. But he's still there. He still loves us. He'll be there tomorrow when we've cooled down and settled down and got some perspective. This is our Father in heaven. And this is the revelation that Jesus brought. You know, this is the way that Jesus treated his disciples. Now again, you know, we say, well, how does Jesus know anything about fathering? Well, let's not forget he's God. <laughs> But even in the natural, you know, he was 30 years of old, or 33 years or thereabouts when he died, about 30 when he went into ministry. But, you know, we know that he had lots of young brothers and sisters. And many would say that Joseph probably died when he was early. So even in the natural sense, Jesus would have been part of bringing up his family, bringing up his young brothers and sisters and being the head of the home. And so he knew how to deal with people. He knew how to encourage and be strong and bring direction and set boundaries and all this. And he did it with his disciples. And we see with, you know, with Peter, the way he treated Peter. Now, he was someone very firm with Peter. But at the same time, Peter felt absolutely accepted. And we see, you know, even when he rejected Peter, uh, Jesus, just before his death, we see that Jesus went out of his way to go back and include Peter and, and just let him know that I'm here for you. It's a, it's a bump in the road, but it doesn't affect my love for you. This is the love of a father in heaven for us. So those things are pretty cool, I reckon. Pretty amazing, don't you think? That Jesus came and he just redefined religion. He just simplified it, distilled it right down to essentially two things. Love God and love people. And then he revealed the fact that God's heart, first and foremost, is that of a father. From the beginning, when God brought this whole shebang into existence, it was with a view to family. It wasn't with a view to boss someone around or to to judge someone and send them to hell. It was always with a view to creating family. So those two things are pretty amazing. But the third thing is mind-boggling. Jesus came to redeem humanity. 
And again, it's, you know, we're Christians. Most of us probably, you know, we, oh, I know where you're going with this. But let's, let's look at it afresh tonight. You know, many prophets and holy men and religious leaders have walked on the planet. And at best, the genuine ones among them have been able to do little more than just highlight our plight and say, hey, God is really holy. He's righteous. He's really good. And you guys are really sinful. You've really messed up. You're doing really bad. You've turned away from God and you need to turn back to him. That's, that's essentially the message of religion. And yet there's this massive chasm, this gap, this void between you and God. And the fact is we all know that. Outside of Christ, there's a sense of disconnection between God. There's a sense of not being able to measure it up. And if we look at religion throughout history, it's full of all sorts of weird and wonderful and sometimes wacky ways of people trying to claw their way back into God's favour. So at best, you know, there's the, the, the proclamation of that truth. At worst, people recognise it and they play on people's guilt. They play on their shame. They play on that sense of loss and, and disconnection. And they try and make money out of it and they come up with all sorts of things. And there's a whole bunch of sacrificing going on, but it's all towards them. Jesus did it totally different. He didn't just remind us of the problem, but he came to be the solution to our problem. He didn't make others sacrifice for him. He came to sacrifice for them and for us. Without what Jesus did, every person on the face of the planet would have to stand before God and give an account for everything they've done. Now, we like to think in terms of good people, bad people. You know, I'm a good enough person. If God's good, I'll get to heaven. No, no. When Jesus came, he spoke about every word, every thought, every action would be judged. And if, you, if there's any little blip on the radar, it's not righteousness in the sense that God is righteous. And he is the standard. And therefore, our own words will condemn us. Our own actions will condemn us. Our own thoughts will condemn us. We'll stand in the, in the pure, blazing white holiness of God's presence and we'll be undone because we'll recognise a lot of the filth that's been going on in our lives. We might have thought, well, I wasn't a murderer, but our own words will be ringing in our heads about some of the gossip and some of the slander and some of the bitterness and some of the resentment that we've held towards people and we wish they were dead. And Jesus said, that's as good as killing someone. And so none of us would stand before God. This thing called sin, this missing of the mark, this rebellion against God, this high treason against God separates every one of us from God's presence. And ultimately, it results in eternal separation. Now, you know, when people start to think about, you know, the penalty of sin is death and, you know, eternal separation and so on, it seems so unfair to us. Yeah? You ever heard someone say, oh, that's so unfair. Why would God, if God's a God of love, how could, why could? But I think there's a couple of reasons why it seems so unfair to us. The first thing is we've never lived an environment that's untainted by sin. We are used to the presence of sin. We just, it's like water off a duck's back to us. We're used to the pain. We're used to the suffering. We're used to the hurt. And we just sort of make the best and get on with it. But God has been living in eternity past in total perfection and total holiness. And so he, he knows the full weight of sin. He sees it for what it really is. You know, when in the beginning it talks, you know, the Bible talks about Adam and Eve. 
And, you know, we just see, oh, how unfair that God would pick on some people and, you know, tell them off for taking a bit of fruit off the tree. I mean, big deal. But God knew what that would unleash. And within a very short time, a guy had killed his brother. And then a guy had killed other people and so on and so on. And all that we see today, has just, it's just sin unleashed doing its thing. And so every relational breakdown, every um, sense of meaninglessness, every um, crime that's committed, ultimately it comes back. It's just sin doing its thing. And God you know, is not like us. He doesn't have the luxury of being confined to just a little part of time and space and just taking on board a little bit of the impact of sin. But he's seen it all. He's seen every war. He's seen every abortion. He's seen every man beat a wife. He's seen all of it. He's seen every child crying their hearts out as their parents separate. He's seen the whole lot, and he's had it. And he says, this thing is going to be judged. He doesn't hate people. He hates sin. He hates what it's done to people. And that's why he sent Jesus. He didn't leave us without hope. He deliberately chose to condemn all of us in Adam. You might think that's unfair. Again, I don't know how much theology you know, but you know, basically when Adam sinned, it's like we all sinned. It's like you're his, you're his family. You all are going to be tarred with the same brush. You're all sinners. And God had an awesome plan in that because he knew that down the track, he was going to say, okay, this is Jesus, my son. And when he's finished doing what he's doing, if you look to him, he can save all of you in one hit. Just as all of you fell in one hit, so too all of you can be saved in one hit through what Jesus did. That's the plan. That's the brilliance of what Jesus did. You know, it's like, I guess as a teacher, it's a really weak illustration. But, you know, sometimes I'd lose my call and, you know, and, and, and someone would do something really stupid. Right, the whole lot of you, you're all staying in. <laughs> After school, right? But then you think, well, that's probably not really fair. Okay, how can I redeem this situation? <laughs> it's like, okay, if, if someone in this class can answer one question right, you can all get out on time. <laughs> it's kind of like that, but nothing like that. You know, God condemned us all in Adam in order that he might give us all the opportunity for salvation through Jesus. It's totally fair. It totally maintains God's justice. And it doesn't minimize sin. That's what Jesus was referring to when he said to his disciples, and again, they didn't get it at the time. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Another time it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, take it, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them. He said, they all drank from it. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so Jesus was saying, hey, look, in, you guys are used to sacrifices. I mean, you know, the temple, really, it was just an abattoir. It was like just bloodletting day after day after day after day. And even that, you know, it was, it was a reminder that sin is not a trivial matter for God. You know, when, a, when an innocent little lamb gets its throat slashed, it's, it's supposed to do something in us. It's supposed to remind us of the gravity of sin. And Jesus is, you know, these guys have got these images in their head. And Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die for your sins. When he died, it wasn't a misunderstanding. It wasn't, things just suddenly went pear-shaped. It was something that was planned since before the foundation of the earth. 
It wasn't a travesty of justice. It was a master stroke. Jesus took the fall for us. Because otherwise, you know, the Bible says, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What can we do? There's no money. You know, the, the value of a human life, it, you can't put a price on it. You can't put a dollar value on it. You can't put a, a, a deed value on it. You can't travel far enough to get it back. All of us are helpless before God. We only have one life to give. And when we've given that life, there's nothing left. And, you know, we give that life, you know, the Bible talks about death, there's levels of death. There's the death of the initial separation from God. There's the physical death that we experience. But ultimately, the Bible talks of a second death. And if you don't pass that judgment, you've got nothing left to give. But Jesus said, I will take the fall for you. I will pay the price that you cannot afford to pay. You don't deserve it. But remember, I'm a God who loves. I'm a God who's looking for family. And again, you might say, well, why, why did God allow this whole shebang to happen? I don't know. But what I do know is that God, in his foreknowledge, in his wisdom, he somehow, in it all, we're going to come out of it at the other end and say, wow, God really knew what he was doing. It's actually better this way. Maybe it's got something to do, that, something to do with something like this. Like maybe, you know, people grow up in a good home and they don't appreciate it. Everything's fine and dandy. And, and maybe the person who, who grew up in a really bad home and then lost their parents and was orphaned and, and then they get brought into a family and love like someone's own. Maybe they just appreciate it a little bit more. Maybe this whole deal is about helping to us to not just take for granted the goodness of God in eternity. I don't know. There's, there's so many reasons that God could have. But we need to be assured that he loves us unconditionally and absolutely. And he has our best interests at heart. And he has every person's best interest at heart. He has atheists' best interests. has Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus. Every person on the face of the planet is wrestling with the same thing that you perhaps are wrestling with or have wrestled with in the past. This sense of separation. This sense of life's got big on me. What happens when this is over? What am I here for? Who can really help me? Every person has those moments. And God is saying, I'm here. And I want to be here for you. All you have to do is acknowledge what my son has done on your behalf, and you can be in on that. I don't know about you, but that's just amazing to me. The fact that God would boil it all down for us and just say, hey, look, love God, love people. The fact that he would reveal himself as our father. And the fact then that Jesus would guarantee that we can have an eternity in this family by dying on our behalf. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.